Well, I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm glad that I'm able to spend a little bit of time with you. Um, I think in these days we should never, ever take anything for granted and uh, just be grateful and rejoice in the Lord always. That's sometimes easier than others, isn't it? Um, and yet when we look at that phrase, in the Lord, that ought to always be a natural thing for a believer. So I encourage you to look at who you are in Christ Look at him and what he has done for you and, and just who he is. And you'll always find reasons to rejoice and uh, to be able to settle your soul in these uncertain times. And when we uh, think about just uh, how good we have it, you know, uh, we, we look around and we see some things maybe that we don't like, some things that are unsettling, some things that don't make sense, whether it's a pandemic or um, the political situation, anything like that, uh, we, we need to realize that as we look at these kind of things, that is the, the devil's distraction for who we really are and where our uh, foundation really is. And we've got to put not just some of our trust in Christ, but the Bible calls for us to put all of our trust in Christ. And uh, the old hymn says, the arm of flesh will fail you. And let me just remind you, whether it's your arm or whether it's the arm of a president or the arm of a pastor or the arm of family members, whoever it is, they're all going to fail you. We've got to have our hope found in um, <coughs> Christ. And as we've been looking at this uh, New City Catechism, and uh, we think about these answers to these questions. As we said, what is our only hope in life and death? We remember that Christianity is not just a religion for the dying, even though we are all dying, aren't we? And um, it's not just for the end of life. This is not just like, um, I think for some Roman Catholics, the whole idea is just make sure there's a priest there to give you last rites so that, uh, you know, you might have a better chance of getting to heaven or maybe spend less time in purgatory. Um, we need to understand as Bible believers that Christ is our life. In him we live and breathe and have our being, that he's the one that sustains us. And so this is our hope every single day in life, whatever we may face. And then we've got to make sure as we looked last week, that we understand who God is. There's not just a multiplicity of gods that we might choose from, and we don't just choose the one that we like the best. And um, I, I even think that when it comes to what church you go to and what your doctrine is and everything, we don't want to just look and say, well, you know, I kind of like Baptist doctrine a little better than I like Lutheran doctrine or Presbyterian doctrine. It really ought to be which is the most accurate reflection of the truth of the Word of God because there really is only one truth. And so uh, we want to get as close to that as we possibly can, realizing that, well, none of us are going to be perfect and we're all growing and learning in our understanding, but we don't want to just 
pick and choose that which we like the best. This is not a cafeteria-style religion. I'll have a little bit of this and a little bit of this. This is something that we want to make sure that we accurately reflect the Bible. And so we've got to understand who God is and make sure that we are worshiping and following and believing the right God or we're in trouble. And that leads us then to this uh, third thing where we're going to talk about something that is admittedly very difficult. It's a little bit confusing sometimes. It's a mind-boggling thing. And uh, it's about the Trinity. You ready to tackle that? And so the question is, how many persons are there in God? Well, we just spent an entire lesson last week talking about monotheism. There's only one God, the true and the living God. And there's no one like him. And yet, when we think about the answer here, we've got to not just take it at face value, but we've got to look and see, does it stand up to what the Bible teaches? It's kind of controversial. I... Um, preached a funeral one time when I was back in Tuttle. And, um, oh, I don't know how much detail to go into. Just in a nutshell, this guy had kind of gotten involved in a cult. And it was called The Way International. Now, when I went to go visit this guy, he was a church member's father, um, I visited him in the hospital before he died and he trusted the Lord and he wanted me to do the funeral. Well, some of his family members who were still in that cult, they brought their cult clergymen into the service. I got a series of blistering letters from the uh, clergymen, I guess you would call them, and a lot of it had to do with my view of salvation, my view of Scripture, and my view of the Trinity. And uh, it was an interesting exchange that uh, came about before all, uh, in all of this. It was weird, weird, weird. And um, these people had the idea that, uh, well, the guy said, even Thomas Jefferson rejected the doctrine of the Trinity as being pagan. And I'm like, well, what does that have to do with me? And what does that have to do with what I believe? But it did cause me to do a little bit of study and a little bit of research to make sure that my understanding was right. Does the Bible teach that there's just one God? Well, that's indisputable. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Does it also teach that there are three persons in this one Godhead. And, um, well, let's look and let's see what the answer is here. And then we'll look at uh, the Bible and we'll see if it's substantiated. There are three persons in, um, in the one true and living God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Okay? They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. 
Now, in the Bible, when we look in 2 Corinthians, and we look in the uh, 13th chapter in the 14th verse, we find what we find over and over and over, this Trinitarian formula that the Apostle Paul and other writers of Scripture like to use. And it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And it's interesting because every time you see that formula where it mentions Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that ought to get your attention. Why are those three things put together? Why are they the things that um, even when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Is there anything to that? And you have to do a little bit of research in order to... Uh, get to the right answer because the word trinity if you look it up in your concordance you're not going to find it it's not mentioned in there that is a name that is a label that we give to this doctrine to this teaching but it is not uh, readily identified in the scripture we're going to have to do a little bit of work so let's think about this number one the trinity is and i'm going to use this word on purpose hinted at in the Old Testament hinted at okay and why do I say that well when you go to the opening book of the Bible and the story of creation when you get down to the part where God is going to make uh, humanity it says in Genesis 1 then God notice that that's singular not the gods or one of the gods or anything like that then God got a capital G the one and the only said let us well that ought to get your attention that's a little weird let us make man in our image notice the plural and after our likeness what in the world can one god be doing when he says let us make man in our image well it's been suggested that maybe this one god yahweh was talking to all the angels. Hey, angels, let's get together and let's make a man in our image. Um, if you remember the carpenters and in their song, Close to You, on the day that you were born, the angels got together and decided to... Uh, angels didn't create us. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that angels created us. And notice that when God says, let us... Make man in our image. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we're created in the image of angels. This is something that we are in the image of God. And this one singular God uses the plural, let us make man in our image. Can't be the angels. It has to be referring to God. Why would there be any kind of a plurality in there? Now... Granted, that doesn't say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it hints at it, doesn't it? Well, uh, is that the only place? Maybe Moses made a mistake when he was writing that and uh, just got some things wrong. Maybe he needed some grammar lessons or something like that. Well, let's look at another one, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah describes his encounter with God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Remember that? 
Well, when you get down to verse 8, here we find the same thing that we found in Genesis 1. And I heard the voice of the Lord, singular, saying, Whom shall I, singular, send, and who will go for us? Plural. Well, where'd that come from? Why does a singular God make reference to himself in the plural? What in the world is going on? And Isaiah, of course, says, uh, Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now, again, to be fair, the Old Testament does not teach the Trinity. These verses do not teach three in one. Uh, they do not teach the uh, divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they certainly do allow for it. And they certainly are interest, uh, interesting to see that where the Bible in the Old Testament among the Jews contends so strongly that there is only one God. And that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the God of Israel. And it's not just a regional God and not just a God for a certain time or a certain race of people or anything like that. The true and living God, one God. And yet these little hints that come up allow for what the New Testament teaches about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So um, that's, to me, interesting. A singular God with a plural reference that not, uh, it's not something that man says. It's what God says about himself. You've got to deal with that and you've got to allow for it. Okay, let's go on to number two. The Trinity is a mystery. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because I don't have to prove to you that it's a mystery. How do you have one God in three persons? I don't know. And I can't figure it out. And neither can you. And neither has anyone else. This is not something that anybody made up. This is not something that the early church put together. In fact, we find that thousands of years before the church existed, we've already seen there were verses in here that allow for this doctrine of the Trinity. This is something that has to be revealed. But understand this. Uh, we don't know who said this. Different early church fathers have been attributed to it. and We don't really know. Uh, but the statement was like this. Try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. Because if you don't have the God of the Bible and the God who is a Trinitarian God, then it's not God. And this is why, uh, and, and we'll kind of touch on this a little bit later, this is why whenever anyone says, well, we all worship the same God just in different names. Some call him Allah, and some call him Jehovah or Yahweh, and uh, it can't be. Because if you go to any Muslim, for example, and you ask them, is Jesus Christ God, they will emphatically tell you no. I had a Muslim that was attending my church in Chelsea, very interested in what I had to say, very interested in our services and attended them over and over. We had baptized his 
uh, wife and his son. So he wanted to know what we taught, what we believed. And so every time I would preach, this guy, his name was AJ. He was from Lebanon. And he would come up to me and he said, that is like what we believe. And I even made a deal with him one time. I found him a New Testament in Arabic. He found me a Quran that was an interlinear that had English with the uh, Arabic. And we made a deal. We would read each other's books because I was a little bit interested in it. And I also wanted him to be exposed to the truth. There was one particular day he walked up to me after church was over and he said, yes, that's very much like what we teach. And he was telling me some things. And uh, I felt the liberty that I had not felt before to ask him this question. And I said, AJ, I just have one question for you. Is Jesus God? And he said, no. And that was the last time he ever spoke to me. He turned around, walked out, and he never spoke again. And yet that was the issue, wasn't it? Because in Christianity, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Islam, God is simply Allah, and there is no Father, no Son, no Holy Spirit. They're not the same God. And so well, when you try to explain that to somebody, it's very difficult. Very difficult because it is a mystery. It's not something that our minds are supposed to fully comprehend. It's something that we are to accept by faith at the revelation of God himself. This is not something we made up. This is not something that we uh, decided we're going to be different than everybody else on the planet. This is something that the Bible reveals and the Bible's revelation is God's revelation to us. So understand, it's difficult because it is a mystery. Try to explain it. You'll lose your mind, deny it, and you'll lose your soul. Uh, thirdly, the teaching, though, is clear. Well, how can it be a mystery and be clear? The mystery is simply in understanding it. It doesn't fit with what we might think as human beings with our limitations. However, when you go to the Bible, there is no disputing that the uh, Old Testament uses, as we said, a singular word for God and then a plural reference. And when you get into the New Testament, then it is very clear. Now, let's talk about each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I am trying to quit doing something I've done all of my life. It's what I was taught to do. It's uh, what my Sunday school teachers and others said. And they say that there's God, and then there's Jesus, and then there's the Holy Spirit. Okay? That makes something that's mysterious even more confusing because all of them are God. So try to get it to where you talk about the Father and the Lord Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and use Father instead of God. All of them are God. Uh, for a little child, they might look at that and go, well, there's Jesus and there's a Spirit and then there's God. Um, that doesn't quite compute with everything here that we're going to say. So we're going to say, number one, the Father is God. Now, out of the three persons of the Godhead, this is the one that is 
the least disputed. So we won't spend much time on it. But in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Notice how he says that. God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So there we had the reference to God the Father. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, the first person of the Godhead. Um, it's a little bit more controversial among uh, some to say that Jesus Christ is God. How could a man be God? And how could he ever have deity? And did he ever claim to have deity? It's interesting how many times you hear people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, they haven't done much reading of what Jesus had to say. Things like I and the Father are one and uh, statements like that. But uh, we're going to look at what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And this describes the doctrine of kenosis. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. What in the world is that? It means emptying. And when Jesus Christ, who always existed, according to John chapter 1, verse 1, he always existed, he was with God, and John 1 says that he was God in this past state. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he emptied himself and then he became a man, emptied himself. He laid aside rights and privileges that he had as God voluntarily out of love for you, out of love for me, and according to the uh, plan of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he came to earth and he's the one that lived the perfect life so that he could be the sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, they turned their backs on him and uh, he bore the wrath of God for our sins. He's the only one that could do that. And only God could do that because only God is good. And the sacrifice had to be like the lambs, unblemished, sinless. And then he was raised from the dead. And it's interesting when you look in the Bible as to think about who raised Jesus from the dead. We'll talk about that in a moment. And we'll see the equality of the Trinity even in that. When you think about our salvation, is the Trinity involved in that? Of course. We can think of it like this. The Father planned it. The Son carried it out. And the Spirit applied it to us. This is how the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit work together. But when we talk about um, Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 um, through 7, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, it's talking about his nature and his existence, his power, his glory, okay? did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. King James Version is a little confusing on that. Did not count it robbery. You know, in that robbery, what are we talking about? Well, 
what does a robber do? He goes into a place and he grabs something and he doesn't let go of it. He takes it out and he holds on to something that is not his. Okay, in that form, uh, it's accurate, but it's a little bit confusing. Jesus wasn't stealing something that wasn't his. And so um, the ESV here has it a little bit more understandable. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be held on to, like maybe a robber would hold on to something. Um, but it says he emptied himself, that's kenosis, emptied himself of all of that by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So here is the second person of the Godhead, equal with God, and says, I will let go of that. And Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the will of the Father to come to earth and be our sacrifice. And he died on the cross, yes, for our sins, but mainly in obedience to God the Father. In Isaiah, it says, it pleased the Father to bruise him. And so we understand Jesus being God even while he was on earth. This is God incarnate, God in flesh, walking among us, living a perfect life, revealing God the Father to us because he became one of us. Um, that is taught very clearly in the Bible. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Are there any references to the Holy Spirit as being God? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it, uh, Paul asked a question to these carnal Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Okay, God's temple. God's temple. Get that in your mind. That's going to matter. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, it asks another question. Or do you not know that your body is a temple? Now, we just heard that we're God's temple. A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why? Because your body, this human body you have, is the temple of God. It is the temple of of the Holy Spirit. What is Paul doing? He's saying that the Holy Spirit lives within you, this body, this temple, and the Holy Spirit is God. It's God's temple. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Same thing. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, you remember that uh, there was a thing that was happening in the early church, and people were impoverished and there were some in the church that were well to do and they were selling land and bringing the money and putting it at the apostles feet Ananias says to his wife Sapphira hey let's do that we can get in on all of this and so he sells land and then he probably got a better price than he expected and he says you know we don't really have to give it all and he was right he didn't have to give it all his sin was not that he didn't give it all. It belonged to him. He could do whatever he wanted. It was a free will offering. 
The fact is he misrepresented himself and he lied about it. And even when asked by the apostle Peter, he still insisted that he was giving all the money. Now, Acts chapter 5 verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You have not lied to man, but to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God. Pretty clear, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, notice in the Great Commission, Jesus said, baptizing them, and notice the equality, in the name of the Father. And notice that, again, that word name there is singular. And yet there are three names. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the Trinitarian formula. And then number four, notice that the Trinity makes our God unique. He is revealed. He's not discovered. And he is unlike any of the gods. The gods of other religion are not the same as the God of the Bible. They're not just the same reference with different names. Can't be. In fact, Exodus 15.11 says... Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? With a little g, the idols, the man-made gods, the false gods, the imaginary gods, we could say. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? Well, the truth is there is no one like our God because there are no other gods. In fact, anywhere you find a false religion, anywhere you find a false god, you find demons. And the energy and the power behind whatever it is that they do, the magic, the supernatural things that they do, it is always, always, always demonic. It is not holy. So just because you see a miracle or something supernatural, don't assume that it's God. Go to the Bible and make sure it's the God of the Bible. Someone put it like this. God is one. There is only one God. And the Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. Now you'll run across some people who will say, well, the truth of the matter is it's only just Jesus appearing in different forms. Kind of like ice if it's in your freezer, it's hard and solid. If it is uh, coming out of your tap, it's like water. If it's on the stove boiling, it's like steam. And that's called modalism. And it says that God sometimes shows up in one of three ways. Sometimes Jesus shows up as a father. Sometimes he shows up as a son. And sometimes he shows up as the Holy Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not just Jesus. It's not just the Father. And it's not just the Spirit. Three in one. They don't exist apart from each other. They don't compete with each other. And uh, they are never, never uh, seen just simply alone. They're always working and always working together. And so that's why our little illustrations 
Uh, when I was a kid, somebody said, it's like an egg shell and uh, yolk and the egg white or something. It's like water, steam, liquid, ice, and all of that. Those illustrations do not work, and they are highly, highly inaccurate. So can you explain the Trinity? Um, very difficult to explain it, isn't it? Um, is the Holy Spirit a lesser God? Some have the idea that the Holy Spirit's like third string or something like that, called off of the bench to come in and help us, and that's simply not true, not true. They're equal, co-equal in nature and attributes. Do the members of the Trinity have differing functions in salvation? Well, they work together, and they're in perfect harmony, uh, but we can see it in terms of the Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross, did he? The Father didn't die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. So yes, they have different functions. The Father plans it. The Son is the one that carries it out. And the Holy Spirit is the one that applies it. And yet they're all working together. In fact, think about it like this. Which member of the Trinity raised Jesus from the dead? Well, in Romans 10, 9, it seems like the Father did says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, the Father, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, does that settle it? Well, in John chapter 10, verse 17, it says, this is Jesus. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Oh, well, that seems to indicate that Jesus raised himself from the dead. Well, he certainly had that power, didn't he? And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. That seems to indicate the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And you know what the truth of the matter is? They all were involved in it. Because whatever God does always involves the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You confused? Does that blow your mind? That's what it means whenever we sing, Our God is an awesome God, because He's not like us. This is a God who doesn't fit in a test tube. This is a God who doesn't fit in our little pea brain. This is a God who is awesome. This is a God who blows our minds. And this is a God that who has revealed himself as one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that ought to make us fall on our faces before him and say, our God indeed is an awesome God, and there is none like him. Accept that by faith. Take it as the way God has revealed it, and live for him, and honor him, and know that he is always with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you, and that the Father is on his throne in heaven. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for you, praying for you, loving you, and one day will return. 
and the Holy Spirit is with you. He's the one that drew you to faith in Christ. He's the one who gave you faith to believe. He is the one who indwells your body and he is the one who will never leave you or forsake you and gives you power for everyday living. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And to that we say, Amen.